Uh, the reading today is from Mark 12, verse 13. So it's on um, page 848 um, on the Bible, church Bibles. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who said that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection... When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as far as the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Thanks uh, for reading 
thanks for in, uh, allowing me to preach uh, with you today. Um, I'm going to preach from the passage we read. You'll have to excuse my voice. I kind of, it's a bit gravelly today, but I'm hoping it will give me a bit more gravitas uh, as I'm speaking. Um, we've been going through Mark's Gospel in our Sunday morning services for quite a while, um, and I preached this recently. Um, so it's difficult when you come somewhere else to know if, you know, if what you're going to preach is um, sort of connecting or whatever, but I hope by the Spirit of God it will be uh, connecting. Um, and uh, Mark's Gospel uh, begins with, this is the beginning of the, go- the Gospel of Jesus, and he's really just highlighting who Jesus is, and we can never get beyond that. We, we never actually really get beyond wanting to know more about who Jesus is and understanding him better. And this passage, this, these, there's three situations that we read uh, together, and they all actually are dealing with the authority of Jesus. Um, in the previous chapter, uh, Jesus' authority has been questioned, and Mark's very um, structured in the way he presents Jesus and, and the way he's balancing out the teaching um, so that he highlights various uh, aspects of Jesus. And here he's, he's three different scenarios where three different groups of people um, question, in many ways, really question the authority of Jesus. And we're going to look at that for a moment. But before doing that, I just want you to think about one verse. It's not a verse we read at all. And it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. But it, it does impinge on our attitude to Jesus maybe this morning as we sit here. Because it says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's a, a remarkable statement. And it's one that uh, um, just... It meets all of us uh, where we are today because whoever we are or wherever we are, the claim of the Bible, the claim of the gospel is that Jesus is authority and we will all stand before him uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. And in many ways, that statement, when we delve back into uh, Mark's gospel, reminds us uh, that Jesus is very much all or nothing you know, for us. He needs to be all or nothing. He is actually who he claims to be, or let's just ditch him. Let's forget about building the church here in Grace Church. Let's forget about planting a church in, in Leith, uh, at the bottom of Leith Walk, for sure. We're called to accept who Jesus is and called to accept his authority. And we recognize the significance of that. It's either his revelation of himself to us, or it's just a mishmash of religious musings that have no real significance for you when you... Uh, rise from your ch- chair and go into your uh, working week. But I think for us, sometimes it's difficult to dovetail the idea of uh, Jesus' grace and Jesus' love uh, with Jesus' authority. We love the idea of love. We all love the idea of love. But we recoil sometimes from the uh, concept that his love is a love that claims our submission to its authority. Because these are kind of dirty words today. They're tainted words, authority and submission. Authority has to do with power. Um, uh, and in our minds, very often, power uh, is either something to be afraid of, uh, is something that's abused, or something we want for ourselves, maybe. And, well, submission is just weakness. But here we come and recognize the claims of Jesus Christ uh, in this passage uh, and throughout Mark's Gospel and throughout the Bible. He's uniquely God who can hold perfect love, justice, and power together in his infinite being without abuse. And he claims authority over every living being 
including you and including me today, as our creator and our judge. So this is the, the passage that we read today. is all about Jesus meeting with different people who are really questioning his authority. And his answers are soaked in significance and revelation about himself. And I hope it will trigger some thoughts in our own minds uh, as we do so. So there's three ways here, uh, or three different ways that people seek to undermine Jesus' authority. And I hope we can um, begin to see parallels between uh, the way they undermine Jesus' authority and the way that Jesus' authority can be undermined today in our own society and maybe sometimes in our own hearts as well. And I didn't know how to title this, but for the first bit, um, paying taxes to Caesar, it's quite a difficult little section. Um, um, so I've said by question, they questioned his authority, or they undermined Jesus' authority by questioning his universality, the universality of, of his authority. Now, that maybe doesn't make much sense to you. Um, um, so I'll try and unpack what I mean here. Because what you have here, if you've got the Pharisees in the first section, verse 13 to verse 17, Pharisees and the Herodians coming together. Now, um, they didn't often come together. They were kind of two disparate groups of people in Jesus' time in Palestine in Jesus' day. And there was a kind of insincere conspiracy here going on to try and uh, question Jesus' authority. And it very much reflects the political situation of the day. Uh, so you had the Herodians who kind of um, enjoyed uh, the Roman occupation of Palestine. Uh, they benefited from it. So Rome had occupied Palestine. And uh, the Herodians tended to be fairly rich and quite powerful. And they dovetailed a lot of times with the uh, Roman authorities and people like tax collectors uh, who uh, worked for Rome uh, also uh, would have been part of this group. So they, they were kind of on Rome's side. Um, and the Pharisees were completely different. Uh, they hated the Roman occupation of Palestine. They despised the authority and the idolatry that was given to the Roman emperor of the day. And they hated being in sub subjugation to uh, the Roman authorities. They were desperate for the Messiah who would come to purge uh, their holy land of uh, the Roman uh, occupation. And so these two came together to question who Jesus was and question his authority, and uh, they, were, they did it by asking this question about who, whether they should pay taxes uh, to uh, Caesar or not. And they thought by doing so, they would expose either some ulterior motivation in Jesus. Uh, was he going to be for Israel or was he going to be for Rome? Uh, was he a seditious or was he a compromiser? Um, and they questioned whether he would really have authority over all of them. He would maybe be on one side or the other. They were wanting to bring him down to a human level and say that uh, he couldn't possibly be the God who would be, uh, or the Messiah who would be our Messiah. And in many ways, that kind of question is no different today. Uh, people uh, consider Jesus, they think about him, um, but don't want him to have ultimate authority over them whatsoever. And they reckon he's a, uh, a leader for some particular section, either the Herodians in, in Jesus' time or, or the Pharisees. And today is no different. He's a historical figure maybe that's been hijacked over the centuries for, uh, to bolster for whatever cause that uh, he stands for. He's a Western savior. It's quite ironic really, isn't he? Or he's a god of the political right. Or he's a Protestant god. Or he's a liberation theology, uh, theology god. Or he's a conservative god. But he can't be everyone's God. He's not my God. He's a God whoever needs him on their side. 
and uh, he doesn't have authority over me. And that would be one of the um, ways that people would reject Jesus today. They would say, well, I'm sure he's fine for you, and it's good, it's good that he's your God, but he's not my God, he's, he's not the God that I believe in, uh, and he hasn't any authority over my life. So there's that question about the universality of, of Jesus' authority that the Herodians and the Pharisees bring up. But then you come to the second area, which is the Sadducees. And uh, they, they question Jesus' authority by ridiculing his theology. And we don't know much about the Sadducees either. Uh, but we do know that uh, theologically, anyway, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife. And uh, so they come to uh, Jesus with this kind of rather ridiculous situation. Um, they took an Old Testament, what was called a Le- Leverite law. Uh, it's in Deuteronomy 25. Now, it's a law that's a bit weird to us, um, um, but it speaks about the duty of a brother-in-law. So if a, a couple got married and the husband died, then the brother, and they didn't have any children, the brother was then um, obligated to marry uh, the widow uh, so that they would have children. And that the story here goes on seven times. And for us, obviously, we read that and we think, that's a bit weird, you know. But in the ancient Near East, um, passing on the family name, uh, passing on the inheritance within the tribes was really vitally important um, for everyone, including uh, the widow. But they use this practice um, to uh, do a kind of mocking who's who uh, in the afterlife. Well, who's going to be the husband of this uh, woman? There are seven of them. And uh, they kind of are mocking the whole idea of the afterlife and denying the plausibility of the resurrection uh, by making fun of this theological truth that Jesus believes in. And again, I'm not sure how different that is to a lot of people today uh, when they're thinking about uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, Many people will deny the physical resurrection, uh, of course, not just of Jesus, but of of anyone, and will mock that whole concept, the idea of an uncreated God, God in the flesh, the Virgin Mary, miracles, a crucified Jew, sex confined within marriage, the sanctity of the unborn, heaven and hell. Seriously? Seriously? Are you asking me to submit to the author of these fantasies and his authority? It's ridiculous. It's implausible. Jesus can't possibly have authority when he believes and teaches these kind of truths. So that's the second uh, questioning of his authority here. They're ridiculing uh, his theology. And the third is the section about the greatest commandment. Uh, where a scribe comes up to Jesus and asks him, uh, what is the greatest commandment? And uh, Jesus answered, and then the scribe says, yeah, that's a great answer. Um, and Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. This is slightly, uh, slightly harder to interpret in terms of uh, the guy's motives and, and what Jesus was saying to him. Uh, and so maybe I'm being a bit harsh on this guy, but I think actually uh, there's a sense in which he, he's kind of patronizing Jesus just as a great moral teacher. Um, It's an interesting section. Um, And Jesus himself says, you know, you're not far from the kingdom. So he's clearly not yet a believer. um, And we don't know whether he did come uh, to believe in Jesus Christ. There's no indication that he became the king that uh, uh, he would follow. But it seems that he did like the moral teaching of Jesus, the wisdom of Christ. But it kind of seems to be on his own terms. It's like he hears what Jesus has to say, 
And then he goes on to say, yeah, absolutely, you're, you're right, you know, teacher, you're right. Um, you've truly said, and so on. He goes on to, uh, it, it's almost as if he says, you're right, you, yeah, you agree with me. Yeah. And Jesus, your, your teaching corresponds with, with what, I, what I believe. And maybe that is also uh, like some people today, especially maybe in a church context, people who are sympathetic, people who maybe even like to live uh, by much of Jesus' moral code, but within their own framework. You know, we admire the wisdom of Jesus, admire his teaching, kind of fits in with the way that I think and the morality of my life. But to follow him, to submit to his authority, well, that's kind of going too far. That's a bit fanatical. I want to be a Christian from a distance. Um, I don't need church, don't really need to have um, prayer or a personal relationship. Uh, but he's a great moral teacher. And there'll be many people that would respond to Jesus in that way. Maybe not so much in our context, but certainly in the society in which we live. So quickly, um, can we look at the responses, the three responses that Jesus gives um, with regard to his own authority and see how they apply to us in our own lives? And when he's talking about uh, the first situation, paying taxes to Caesar, Jesus says to them, you know, bring me a coin whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus says, render to Caesar things that are Caesar, to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. Now, there's lots we could say about that. There's lots we could talk about, you know, about um, uh, Jesus giving rightful authority for uh, leaders to receive taxes from us. But I'm just going to focus on one thing. Uh, it's because clearly uh, Jesus, uh, there's a play on, on the word image that we have here. Um, whose image, whose likeness and inscription is this? And it's the same, work in Greek, the same word in Greek that's used for the image of God back in Genesis chapter 1. And uh, Caesar's image was on the coin, and his image mattered. And uh, Jesus says, look, this guy has human authority. You know, you've taken the coin out of your pocket. You're obviously happy enough to use the coin and deal with them then, if you're using that coin, then pay taxes to him, that's fine. But it's only the image on a coin. And it will fade and it will be thrown away and it will be handled and mishandled. But God is worthy of our allegiance simply because we are made in God's image. So render to God what is God. And there's that reflection of uh, using that word of image uh, going back to the very beginning. So Jesus is saying that God's created us for him. And we are made for him, made by him, and made to be with him. We owe our life. We owe him our life. We are image bearers. And because of that, there's a, a huge universality about what Jesus is saying here. Is that every human being is made in the image of God. And we will all stand before him to give account. Including Caesar. Caesar who was worshipped and Caesar who was adored and idolized as a god. Would stand before Jesus. And Christ is here, standing uh, with a human body uh, who has taken on flesh because he recognizes and knows that our image before God is broken and marred and needs restoration. And he has come to take on flesh to be our Redeemer and to be our Savior. And it's not far from the crucifixion uh, as we come uh, towards that in these passages. He, he became human. He took on human flesh. 
uh, because he recognized that uh, in Christ's mind as he spoke here, he was about to pay a greater debt that no one could pay except him for our sins and our failure. So in claiming authority, he says, you know, you're image bearers. Uh, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ because of who we are, who we are made uh, to image and that broken image which only Christ can redeem and buy back. And then we come to the second one, the Sadducees and uh, their claim about the resurrection. And it's quite, it's quite interesting in terms of authority here. He just says at the end of the section, he says, you're, you're just quite wrong. <laughs> he says, you're wrong. You're simply wrong. Um, speaking specifically about the resurrection. And, and it's, it could be translated, they'd greatly gone astray in their thinking. And he appeals to the Bible's revelation and to the power of God and to the nature of heaven. But he does so because he himself knows as his author that it is true and absolutely so. And he has confidence because he himself uh, is days before his own resurrection, death and resurrection on the cross. Um, and he says, therefore, I know, I know what I'm speaking about. I know what's going to happen. And that's why I've come. And he's outworking his divine power uh, as he goes towards the cross, knowing that he will be resurrected. Previously, there's a section where three times he prophesies about his death and his resurrection to the disciples. It's very much on his mind as he makes his way towards Jerusalem. He is thinking about his physicality as a, a, an image um, taking the image of man as a human in human flesh, and he is going towards the cross, and he knows about the resurrection, and so he's saying here, as it were, these guys are coming up to me and they're talking about the resurrection, or ridiculing the resurrection. I'm about to to die and be resurrected. I know what I'm talking about. This is why I've come. I will defeat death, and I'll defeat the sting of death, um, and his. Resurrection anticipates and seals all of the revelation that we have in God's Word. And I think sometimes uh, we need to consider and think about uh, the authority of His love, which is sometimes incomprehensible to us, and the amazing reality of His justice, which is inscrutable. So He just says to them, You're quite wrong, with just power and authority. And we need to consider that authority in our own lives, especially in the light of what we will celebrate shortly uh, with the Lord's Supper and what it means. And lastly, the section about the greatest command. Um, again, uh, he speaks with authority and he recognizes that uh, he has the authority to say to someone, you're not far from the kingdom because he himself is the king of that kingdom. Uh, and he knows himself what the, all of the law of God and what it means uh, that it's summed up in one command, even though he gives two expressions of that, that you uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. There's only one entry point into this kingdom, which he says that this scribe has not yet entered. And uh, the one entry point is Jesus himself. 
Jesus is the gate, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Because he alone is able and has fulfilled this command. He alone, as he walked the earth, loved the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loved his neighbor as himself. He's the only living expression of uh, fulfilling uh, God's command. And he has done that because we can't, and he's done it in our place where we stand condemned. And so here he is uh, revealing himself as the king, revealing himself as the one who himself uh, fulfills uh, this great command. And the greater love has no man than this that he would lay down his life for his friends. So he, he takes this love that he has himself worked out, the fulfillment of the command of God, and he expresses it uh, in the greatest and deepest way for humanity and for you and for I and for me this morning. And that's the ultimate authority of his being. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And the challenge is to recognize him today as our king. It's something that's not uh, very popular. Uh, we have a constitutional monarchy, so we don't, a king doesn't really have any authority. Um, and we struggle with the idea of supreme authority. But Jesus is the one who says, I need to be your king. And it'd be your savior. And it'd be the one that you submit to because of my great love because I've revealed myself in my word and in my person and because you are image bearers of the living God. So I think we remind ourselves this morning that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ because he has that authority and it's important to live our lives in, the con in that context and in that understanding and with that perspective. Uh, because I do believe that that challenges the way we think, the way we live, the way we act, and uh, the way we respond to Jesus Christ. Not keeping him at arm's length, uh, or not just uh, asking him to submit to us, uh, and for us to have that ultimate authority in our lives, but to confess and to recognize that he is worthy, and that he alone is the one to whom we can give our lives and uh, our submission. So that's all I'm going to say this morning. So let's pray. Father God, we ask and pray that you would teach us your ways, that you guide us in your path, that we would uh, recognize the amazing authority of Jesus, that we would not, uh, that we would not stand over you uh, in pride or um, uh, with our own uh, particular ideas uh, and seek to mold you into the image we want, but enable us to be submissive to Jesus and um, recognize the depth of his love for us, uh, the creative glory uh, of the one who made us all in his image and how we've marred and broken that image by our sin. But remind us also of the outstanding commitment that he has shown to us in taking on flesh, the creator becoming created. And uh, in that uh, remarkable incarnation, which we'll remember over these next few weeks, 
that he reveals his own perfection and also his own authority on the cross where he didn't die. He gave himself over to death. And he rose again on the third day with ultimate and complete authority. So remind us of that this morning, we pray, and and help us to uh, live in the light of uh, the great indwelling power of the Holy Spirit who transforms our hearts and transforms our lives. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.